Welcome to Heightened Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and civil rights. I'm Joe Dunman. In 1967, after decades of both slow and sudden progress, the Supreme Court crumbled the last major pillar of Jim Crow. This is Loving v. Virginia, the interracial marriage case. Mildred and Richard Loving both grew up in rural Virginia in the middle of the 20th century. Richard, a white man, and Mildred, a woman of African-American and Native American descent, married in Washington, D.C. in 1958. Soon after they settled into their marital home back in Virginia, they were arrested for violating that state's anti-miscegenation laws, which forbid white people and black people from being married. In a 1967 interview with ABC News, Mildred described their terrifying run-ins with local law enforcement. But I didn't realize how bad it was until we got married. I guess it was about 2 a.m. And I saw this light, you know, and I woke up and there was the policeman standing beside the bed. And he told us to get up, that we was under arrest. And anyway, they carried us to Bowling Green and uh, locked us up. And in January, they had the trial. And they uh, told us to leave the state for 25 years. But the way I understood it, the lawyer said that we could come back to visit, you know, when we wanted to. So that Easter, we came back and they got us again. We had been down a few times before that, but at Easter we came down, they found that we were down. They arrested us again. The local police raided their house and arrested them in the middle of the night, in bed, for the crime of miscegenation. After spending time in jail, the Lovings relocated to D.C., where they lived poor as Richard struggled to find work far away from their friends and family. In 1964, feeling desperate and homesick, Mildred reached out to Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who referred the Lovings to the ACLU. Volunteer attorney Richard Cohen of Virginia took their case, along with Philip Hirschkopf, who by then had only been out of law school for a few months. The two attorneys appealed the Loving's convictions and eventually reached the Virginia Supreme Court. There, they challenged the Virginia bans on interracial marriage under the 14th Amendment, which requires equal protection of the law and due process before a liberty interest such as marriage can be deprived. But the Virginia Supreme Court rejected their arguments, specifically citing a 1955 case called Name v. Name, Name versus name, as the name suggests, was a case between spouses. A Chinese-American man named Han Se Name and a white woman named Ruby Elaine Name were married in North Carolina in 1952. Ruby was a Virginia resident at that time, but the couple chose to marry in North Carolina because Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924 banned all interracial marriages. North Carolina only banned marriages between white and black people. But after a year, the marriage fell apart and Ruby filed for an annulment, citing the Virginia law. The lower court granted the annulment, but Ham Name appealed to the Virginia Supreme Court. There, he argued that the courts had no power to annul his marriage under the Racial Integrity Act because prohibition of marriage on racial grounds was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. But in 1955, only one court in the entire country had agreed with such an argument. The California Supreme Court had struck down that state's anti-miscegenation law in 1948 in a case called Perez v. Sharp but every other state Supreme Court to have considered whether interracial marriage bans were constitutional had ruled that they were. In its name opinion, the Virginia Supreme Court cited approvingly to cases from Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Missouri, North Carolina, Montana, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, and Oklahoma. All reached the same conclusion. 
nothing in the 14th Amendment prevented states from banning interracial marriage. The name court pointed out that marriage was traditionally the sole domain of the states, not the federal government or even the Constitution, which is silent on it. Sure, the Supreme Court had struck down segregation in the schools just the year before in Brown v. Board of Education, but it had never contested the validity of interracial marriage bans. So the name court ruled against Han, the Chinese-American husband, and upheld Virginia's Racial Integrity Act. In the court's words, the institution of marriage has always been considered a proper subject for state regulation in the interest of public health, morals, and welfare. Going further, the court held that we are unable to read in the 14th Amendment any words or intendment which prohibit the state from enacting legislation to preserve the racial integrity of its citizens, or which denies the power of the state to regulate the marriage relation so that it shall not have a mongrel breed of citizens. In fact, the court wrote, we find there no requirement that the state shall not legislate to prevent the obliteration of racial pride, but must permit the corruption of blood even though it weaken or destroy the quality of its citizenship. His marriage annulled and the Racial Integrity Act upheld, Mr. Name then sought review by the U.S. Supreme Court, but was rejected. It is believed that the Supreme Court wanted to avoid causing any further backlash to its 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision by so quickly taking up a marriage case. So it allowed the Virginia Racial Integrity Act, along with similar laws in many other states, to stand. Now, by the time the Lovings reached the Virginia Supreme Court in 1966, the Racial Integrity Act was still alive and well, and the U.S. Supreme Court had still not struck down any similar law. The racial segregation in the schools was illegal under Brown, and racial segregation in employment and public accommodations had been banned by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Sixteen states still had anti-miscegenation laws on the books. Without any clear ruling from the Supreme Court to the contrary, the Virginia Supreme Court once again upheld the Racial Integrity Act and refused to reverse the Loving's conviction. Undeterred, the Lovings, led by their attorneys Cohen and Hirschkopf, turned to the U.S. Supreme Court, which this time decided not to punt on the question of interracial marriage. On April 10, 1967, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Loving v. Virginia. Chief Justice Earl Warren is presiding. Number 395. Richard Perry Loving, et al. Appellants, versus Virginia. The Loving attorneys tag-teamed their argument before the court. Hirschkopf took the equal protection argument and spoke mostly uninterrupted for a half an hour. Cohen followed with the due process argument. During his argument, Hirschkopf explained that the Virginia statute, which was originally passed during the colonial era, was designed to keep slaves in their places and preserve what was considered the superior white race from intermingling and being diluted. Cases like Name and Loving After It upheld this reasoning all the way into the 1960s, as Hirschkopf explained. The Loving case comes to you based on the case of Name versus Name. Well, what were they talking about in Name versus Name? Again, they wanted to preserve the racial integrity of their citizens. They wanted not to have a mongrel breed of citizens. We find there no requirement that the state shall not legislate to prevent the obliteration of racial pride, but must permit the corruption of blood, even though it weaken or destroy the quality of the citizenship. These are racial, and equal protection thoroughly prescribes these. In the case before you, the opinion of the lower court, Judge Bazile, and we have it footnoted at page 37 of our brief, where he says, Almighty God created the right races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And I needn't read the whole quote, but it's a fundamentally ludicrous quote. And again, that's what they're talking about. 
we feel the very basic wrong of these statutes is they rob the Negro race of their dignity. And fundamental in the concept of liberty in the 14th Amendment is the dignity of the individual. Because without that, there is no ordered liberty. Cohen later argued that marriage was a fundamental right, and as a fundamental right, it received extensive due process protection, and states could not easily infringe upon it. Indeed, the Supreme Court had pronounced marriage to be of fundamental importance to American society several times in the past, but states still put restrictions on marriage, as Justice Potter Stewart was quick to point out. There's some limit on that. I suppose you would agree that a, that a state could forbid ma a marriage between a brother and a sister, wouldn't you? We uh, uh, have conceded that the state may properly regulate marriages and may regulate divorces, and indeed they have done so, and this court has uh, upheld certain regulations. I don't know whether the issue of consanguinity or affinity has ever been here, but certainly the one that comes to mind first would be the Reynolds case in the polygamy matter, and we have no trouble distinguishing uh, those, and I, I don't think the court will either. There was no race question involved. No, but you're, you're not uh, now arguing about any race question. You're arguing complete freedom to contract aren't you, under the Due Process Clause? Well, uh, I, I have stated that the Due Process Clause has been subject to many articulations. And what I was going to go on to say was that all of these articulations can find some application in this particular case. One can still argue that there is liberty and a right to marry, as this Court has said in Meyer and Skinner, and that in no way detracts from our argument that they cannot, the state cannot, infringe upon the right of M Richard and Mildred Loving to marry because of race. Uh, these, are, uh, uh, these are just not acceptable grounds. We're talking about an arbitrary and capricious ground. And uh, uh, we, we uh, should have no well, trouble. Some, some people might think with reason that it's arbitrary and capricious to forbid first cousins to marry each other. The uh, state where I used to live uh, does have such a law prohibiting first cousins from marrying each other now because uh, a large body of opinion might think that's arbitrary and capricious. Does that mean that the state has no constitutional power to pass such a statute? I believe that we run into another uh, step before we can reach that uh, your Honor, and that is the burden of coming forth with the evidence. I think that a state can legislate and can restrict marriage and might even be able to go so far as to restrict marriage between first cousins as some states have. And I think that if that case were before the court, they would not have the advantage that we have of a presumption being shifted and a burden being shifted to the state to show that they have a reasonable basis for proscribing interracial marriages. However, if we were here on a first cousin's case, I think we would have the tougher road to hoe because we would have to come in and show that the proscription was arbitrary and capricious, was not based upon some reasonable grounds. And that is a difficult thing for an appellant to do. What Cohen was saying here is that because race was the factor by which Virginia had prohibited the marriage of Mildred and Richard Loving, it is the state's burden to prove that they have a good reason to make such a classification. 
If, in Justice Stewart's hypothetical, the Lovings had been arrested because they were first cousins, and Virginia had banned that, they would have had a tougher case because such a classification is not entitled to anything more than a rational basis, a lower form of scrutiny. In that situation, the challengers, the Lovings, would have had to have shown that the ban on cousin marriages was totally irrational. But race is different. More than 20 years before Loving, in the notorious case of Korematsu versus the United States, dealing with the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, the Supreme Court had noted that racial classifications must always be viewed with the strictest form of judicial scrutiny. America's horrendous history of racism and slavery makes any racial classification in the law immediately suspect. Now, in 14th Amendment cases, strict scrutiny requires that the state prove it has a compelling purpose for its classification or its infringement of a fundamental right. Without such a purpose, the law is struck down. Very few government purposes have been considered compelling. Public safety and national security, certainly, but few others. So Hirschkopf and Cohen have presented a two-pronged argument. First, that the Virginia marriage ban violates equal protection because it draws a racial classification based on white supremacy. And second, the ban violates due process because it infringes on a fundamental right without sufficient justification. So we turn next to Virginia's argument, delivered by Robert McElwain, Virginia Assistant Attorney General. In order to avoid the crushing weight of strict scrutiny, a standard under which few classifications and infringements survive, McElwain needs to do two things. First, he has to argue that the 14th Amendment doesn't even apply at all, and poses no restriction on states' power to regulate marriage. Second, he has to argue that even if the 14th Amendment does apply, the court should only require the state to show it has some kind of minimally rational reason to ban interracial marriage. On the first point, McElwain makes an originalist argument. He says the original understanding of the men who framed the 14th Amendment was that it did nothing to interfere with the prohibition of interracial marriage. So Justice Byron White probes further. No one has been found who has analyzed this problem, who has suggested that it was the intention of the framers of the 14th Amendment or the understanding of the legislatures which ratified it, that the 14th Amendment affected to any degree the power of the state's to forbid the intermarriage of white and colored citizens. For the people who spoke to the question for suggesting that the language of the statutes they were then debating did not cover uh, uh, interracial marriage. For the proponents in saying that it did not cover, the basis placed were two. One, that if the statute equally forbade the white race to marry the colored race and the colored race to marry the white race, then, in the opinion of the framers, that, that was not a violation of equal protection or due process. In other words, the classification itself was not a violation. The second was that historically the regulation of the marital relationship was within the states and that there was no intent on the 14th Amendment to have any effect at all upon the state's power over marriage. These are the two bases. Now, under this, the language which they used in saying that it had no, relate, had no effect upon the state's power over marriage, they also said, provided no discrimination is made by it. It's clear under the legislative history of the 14th Amendment that if a statute had forbade white people to marry colored people and then had a different penalty prescribed for violation of that statute, that even the framers of the 14th Amendment would have thought that that would have been unconstitutional. Our reading of the legislative history is sufficient to lead us to believe 
that if anybody had suggested that it would have that effect, the entire first section of the 14th Amendment would have been lost. No one, the proponents, would never have suggested that the 14th Amendment was going to abolish the power of the states to forbid interracial marriages. Thus we say that if the legislative history is given effect in this case, the statute of Virginia cannot be held to violate it. So, was McElwain right? Did the framers of the 14th Amendment really believe that the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses had no impact at all on interracial marriage bans? There's decent support for that argument. For example, law professor Alfred Avens published an article in the Virginia Law Review in 1966, just prior to the Loving case. In that article, titled Anti-Miscegenation Laws in the 14th Amendment, The Original Intent, Avens cites extensively to the legislative history of the time period. Democrats at the time repeatedly raised the specter of interracial marriage in order to oppose civil rights legislation and a broad interpretation of post-Civil War racial equality. Laws designed to raise African Americans up to equal footing with whites, they argued, would someday lead to the dreaded amalgamation of the superior white race and the inferior black race, dilute the bloodline, and create an inferior breed of mixed-race children. Republicans dismissed these claims as paranoid. In their view, Nothing in legislation such as the Freedmen's Bureau Bill or the Civil Rights Act of 1866 prevented the states from prohibiting interracial marriage as long as the bans applied to everyone equally and the penalties for violating the bans were equal as well. Maybe the Republicans were lying at the time, but their reactions were incredibly consistent. Each time the Democrats suggested that equal protection would lead to race mixing, the Republicans assured them it would not. But McElwain knew he couldn't rely solely on this history to win this case. For one, the legislative history of the 14th Amendment itself, unlike the history of the old Civil Rights Act, had no record one way or the other on interracial marriage. And more importantly, the Supreme Court had recently struck down school segregation despite decades of uncontroverted precedent allowing it. The case of Plessy v. Ferguson had found the doctrine of separate but equal to be in line with the Equal Protection Clause all the way back in the 1800s, and the court in that case had even mentioned that interracial marriage bans were considered constitutional. The fact that Plessy had been the law of the land for nearly three quarters of a century was no deterrent to Chief Justice Earl Warren and the rest of the court when they unanimously overruled it in Brown v. Board of Education. So McElwain had to pivot from history to something else. And that something else was Virginia's claimed interest in regulating marriage. The state faced a potential threat to public health and well-being from mixed-race marriages, he argued. Text writers and judicial writers agree that the state has a natural, direct, and vital interest in maximizing the number of successful marriages which lead to stable homes and families and in minimizing those which do not. It is clear from the most recent available evidence on the psychosociological aspect of this question that intermarried families are subjected to much greater pressures and problems than are those of the intramarried and that the state's prohibition of interracial marriage for this reason stands on the same footing as the prohibition of polygamous marriage or incestuous marriage or the proscription of minimum ages at which people may marry and the prevention of the marriage of people who are mentally incompetent. McElwain says that the state has a vital interest in maximizing the number of successful marriages. But, he says, interracial marriages are not successful due to psychosociological pressures. To support his argument, McElwain relied entirely on a book by anthropologist Albert I. Gordon. In the book, Gordon studied hundreds of interracial married couples. He wrote that such couples often struggled with psychological problems and social stresses, and their children suffered from those problems as well. 
But Justice Stewart points out something very unclear in Gordon's work, causation. Dr. Gordon has stated it as his opinion that it is my conviction that intermarriage is definitely inadvisable, that they are wrong because they are most frequently, if not solely, entered into under the present-day circumstances by people who have a rebellious attitude towards society, self-hatred, neurotic tendencies, immaturity, and other detrimental psychological factors. Of course, you don't know what is his cause and what his effect. Assuming the validity of these statistics, I suppose one could be argued that one reason that uh, marriages of this kind are sometimes unsuccessful is the existence of the kind of laws that are an issue here and the, and the attitudes that those laws reflect. As Justice Stewart asks, if interracial couples and their children show psychological stress and are prone to family strife, couldn't it be because society scorns them and tells them that they are criminals simply for being in that kind of family? The problem here could be circular. States justify their marriage bans on the basis that interracial relationships are prone to hardship, but that hardship may actually be caused by the bans themselves, rather than some inherent social or biological deficiency. Now, Chief Justice Earl Warren then asked McElwain whether he thinks there's any kind of biological difference between the races. McElwain says no, but also that there's no clear scientific consensus. After a while, Justice Hugo Black chimes in and cuts through the bull. May I ask you this question? Aside from all questions of genetics, psychology, psychiatry, sociology, and everything else, aside from all that, forgetting it for the moment, is there any doubt in your mind that the object of these statutes, the basic premise on which they rest, is that the white people are superior to the colored people and should not be permitted to marry? On the, the two statutes before, Your Honor, I do think that that is not so. So far as 20-54 is concerned, the Act of Virginia of 1924 to preserve racial purity, I think that is unquestionably true. I'm not talking that, about what they labeled it. I'm just asking no, you for I, your I, I think it is was... Is there any possible basis? Is, is, is not the basic premise on which they are written that the white people are superior to the colored people? and that they should not, therefore, be permitted to marry because it might pollute the white race. Your Honor, I think that uh, there is. In other words, I think there is, is justification for saying that that is not but the... Do you, do you think there's a stronger justification that that is it? You mean, do you, I think historically yes, that, 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 that the legislatures that which enacted them had that thought in mind? That's right. Yes, I think that that's... That's clear. the basic thing on which they rested. That, that's on which the original enactments were rested. I think that's perfectly clear. If any of the justices on the bench at that time understood white supremacy, it was Justice Black. In the late 1920s, as a young aspiring politician in Alabama, Hugo Black joined the Ku Klux Klan. He was not a member for very long and resigned around 1926, just before he made his first run for U.S. Senate. His past Klan membership remained a secret for 10 years, until a reporter with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette revealed it in a series of news articles that ran in September 1937, just one month after Black had been appointed to the Supreme Court. Black gave a radio address in October that year, admitting his membership, but stating that he had long ago resigned and had no affinity for the group. He would later tell a reporter that at the time he would have joined any group if it helped get him votes. But back to the questions about white supremacy. In response, McElwain made a startling but honest concession. 
Yes, the Virginia Racial Integrity Act was motivated by white supremacy. It was designed to prevent white people from supposedly diluting the race by marrying and having children with black people. But the white supremacist history of the law didn't matter, said McElwain. What mattered was the present. Now, in the 1960s, it was Virginia's position that interracial marriage was psychologically and socially harmful to interracial couples and their children, and therefore the ban was rational. McElwain and Chief Justice Warren go back and forth for some time about whether or not the Virginia laws prohibit only whites from marrying blacks, or whether it also prohibits whites from marrying other minorities, such as Asians or Native Americans. In response, McElwain explains that the state doesn't even need to draw its lines that precisely. The statute doesn't have to apply with mathematical nicety. It is sufficient if it reasonably deals with what the legislature can reasonably apprehend to be an evil. And with 99% of the population in Virginia, in one of these two races, the danger of interracial marriage so far as Virginia is concerned is a danger of marriage between white and color. If there's one major thing McElwain is inconsistent on, it's the importance of history to the court's analysis. When interpreting the 14th Amendment, he says the court should look to history and the understanding of the framers. But when it comes to white supremacist justifications for Virginia's law, he says the court should ignore that history and instead rely on Virginia's contemporary understanding of social problems posed by interracial marriages. But then he pivots back to history and says this. Of course, we go fundamentally to the proposition that for over 100 years since the 14th Amendment was adopted, numerous states, as late as 1956, a majority of the states, and now even 16 states, have been exercising this power without any question being raised as to the authority of the states to exercise this power. Indeed, but which 16 states were those? Chief Justice Warren notes a peculiar trend. The same states that still prohibited interracial marriage in the late 1960s were states that still segregated their schools in the 1950s. So Justice John Marshall Harlan asked the obvious next question. All things aside, how does McElwain distinguish Brown v. Board of Education from the case now before the court? Starting from that premise, how would you rationalize a decision upholding this statute with Brown against the board? Well, I would say that Brown against the Board of Education proceeded upon the premise that education was fundamental to good citizenship, that it was a necessary requirement of good citizenship, that all children were in the modern age required to be educated, and that the right to be educated in the present day world was one of overriding importance, and that uh, that right could not be infringed by a statute which the court found uh, made the educational opportunities inherently unequal. Wouldn't, now, you, wouldn't you say the right to marry and to bear children is equally important? I would say that the right to marry, if I were rationalizing a decision upholding it, would, under the decisions of this court, Meyer against Nebraska, and Pierce against Society of Sisters, and Skinner versus Oklahoma, would also say that the right to marry is a right, but it is, there is no requirement that people marry, and therefore a statute which forbids marriage is not the same as forbidding children to receive education. None of the nine justices were convinced by that argument, or any of McElwain's arguments. On June 12, 1967, 
Chief Justice Earl Warren delivered the unanimous opinion of the court. Virginia's anti-miscegenation law, and all other laws like it, were unconstitutional under both the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Today, the United States Supreme Court handed down a decision. The Lovings ordeal is at last over. Richard and Mildred Loving have won the right to be man and wife, father and mother, in the state of Virginia. Anti-miscegenation laws have been declared illegal not only in Virginia, but in all 16 states that have held such statutes. This is Hope Ryden, ABC News, reporting. The court rejected the notion that mere equal application of a law with racial classifications was sufficient to survive equal protection scrutiny. The problem was not the application, but the inclusion of invidious racial classifications in the first place. The court also rejected the argument that any alleged original understanding of the 14th Amendment could save the ban. The court read the legislative history as ultimately inconclusive, and at any rate, the same court rejected the same arguments made in Brown v. Board of Education. What ultimately mattered the most to the court was that the statutes drew racial classifications out of a desire to promote white supremacy, not any legitimate government purpose. Thus, they were unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. In conclusion, the court dedicated just two paragraphs to due process. First, it said marriage is a fundamental right under the 14th Amendment. Second, denying that right on the basis of race alone is to deprive all the state citizens of due process. Under our Constitution, Chief Justice Warren wrote, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. Beyond the fact that Loving struck down the interracial marriage bans in 16 states, or that it overruled decades of contrary precedent in dozens of state and federal courts, it is remarkable for something else. It is remarkable because it was unanimous. It is generally believed today that Chief Justice Warren took great behind-the-scenes pains to wrangle unanimity out of the court in both Brown v. Board of Education and in Loving. Unanimity, he believed, would reinforce the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the public, even as it handed down deeply divisive decisions. A split in either case, Warren believed, would undercut any moral authority the court would otherwise command in its rulings on such important social and philosophical issues. Today, there's almost universal agreement among lawyers and law professors that Loving v. Virginia was rightly decided. It and Brown v. Board of Education stand as the most important Supreme Court decisions on race handed down during the era of Chief Justice Warren. But there's still not universal agreement among the general public that the government should have no power to ban interracial marriage. Hostility towards mixed-race relationships, especially in the South, has been slow to dissipate. For example, in the late 1990s, daytime talk shows were still featuring fights between white parents and their daughters for dating black men. In this episode of The Jenny Jones Show from 1995, an angry white mom makes roughly the same argument about the dangers of interracial relationships that Virginia made before the Supreme Court in 1967. Vicki Ronan was very upset about her daughter Amy's relationship with a black man. Vicki told Amy that because Adam was black, no man would ever want her again. Yeah. She has a lot of future ahead of her. Go ahead. Why does he have to step in here and ruin her future? Do not believe in interracial relationships. Would you still let her date another Amy, person? no, I do not believe in interracial relationships. I asked him not to Can you tell us why? Can you tell us why, Vicki? Vicki, Vicki, why do you not approve of interracial relationships? What's wrong with black people? There's nothing wrong with them. It's what their children, when they when they have children, unprotected sex, and they have children that are suffering. My grandchildren. Now, you can argue that such opinions became grist for the talk show mill in the 1990s, because they had finally shifted to the fringe. But then again, maybe not. After all, Alabama did not finally repeal its old miscegenation statute until the year 2000. In a statewide referendum, 
40% of Alabama voters wanted to keep the statute on the books more than 30 years after Loving had made it unenforceable. Today, with sentiments continuing the shift, the number of interracial marriages and mixed-race children are growing quickly across the U.S., even in the Deep South, as the New York Times reported in 2011. New numbers from the 2010 census show that the nation's mixed-race population is growing more quickly than demographers expected. Mississippi led the nation in growth of mixed marriages for most of the last decade. It is surprising, considering that just 44 years ago, marriage between blacks and whites was illegal here. As for Mildred and Richard Loving, their belief in equality and their devotion to each other never changed. Though Richard died in a car accident in 1975 and Mildred passed in 2008, they will forever be held up together as civil rights pioneers. Not just for empowering the Equal Protection Clause, but also giving weight to the idea of marriage as a fundamental right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heightened Scrutiny. You can support this podcast by visiting its website, scrutinypod.com, by liking it on Facebook, by following it on Twitter, and by subscribing to it via iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services. You can also support Heightened Scrutiny financially. Heightened Scrutiny has launched the campaign through Patreon. You have the option to donate on a recurring monthly basis any amount you choose to help keep Heightened Scrutiny going. Producing this podcast is not free, and it takes a considerable amount of time and effort. Please check out patreon.com scrutinypod for more information. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll keep tuning in.